0: This episode is brought to you by pelvic relief born out of necessity pelvic relief was founded by mother of three Eleanor Gardner for all of those who discovered they could not access quality products and information to manage conditions such as pelvic pain incontinence and painful sex. Led by science and quality, Palvet Relief has brought together best-in-class products for Palvet Relief, including sole-source silicon and DRS dilators, O-nuts, EVB support wear, period and incontinence pants, EZ Magic and Yes Lubricants and moisturisers. Gronje and I highly recommend Palvet Relief, frequently referring our patients to purchase quality products knowing they will receive a quality service. To visit the website, visit www.pelvicrelief.co.uk. Thank you so much, Pelvic Relief, for sponsoring At Your Cervix podcast season two. This is At Your Cervix, the podcast, the podcast where pelvic health physiotherapists Emma Brockwell and Gwanya Donnelly talk to incredible guests who help lift the lid and bust the myth on all things pelvic health. Hello and welcome back to a brand new season of At Your Cervix, the podcast with Gwanya Donnelly and me, Emma Brockwell. We hope you had a great summer. The clocks have gone back, Halloween has been and gone, and unbelievably, Christmas is just around the corner. But for the next eight weeks, we'll be joining you every week to bring you a conversation around a subject we're very passionate about, pelvic health. So this episode, we are joined by the wonderful Dr. Sinead DeFore pelvic health physiotherapist, academic, and educator. And today she joins Gronyu and I to talk about pregnancy-related girdle pain, a condition we all treat frequently and a condition that can cause so much pain and discomfort throughout a pregnancy. So it's a really important topic. She's going to help us bust the myths around this condition and also help any one of you access better information on how best to manage and treat this condition. So if you're suffering from pelvic girdle pain, or if you treat pelvic girdle pain, this episode is for you. Hello, and welcome to season two, episode one of At Your Cervix, the podcast. And Gronya and I are super excited to be joined by a rather special guest today, Dr. Sinead DeFore. And we're going to be talking about what we consider to be a really important topic that affects, unfortunately, a lot of pregnant women, and that's called pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain. Um, I'm really hoping today that if you're pregnant listening to this you're going to come away feeling empowered and informed as to how best to manage your symptoms and if you're someone that treats pelvic girdle pain then again you're going to feel really empowered and informed as to know how best to manage your patients and 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 get them better. So before I introduce Sinead I just want to say thank you so much for joining us from Canada. Thank you so much for having me I'm excited to be here. It's long overdue, so um, I'll I'll introduce you. I'm sure most, most listening will know you anyway, but everyone deserves a formal introduction, so here goes. Dr. Shanae DeFour is an Associate Clinical Professor in the Faculty of Health Science at McMaster University. She teaches and conducts research in the School of Medicine, Nursing and Rehabilitation Science. Her current research interests include conservative approaches to manage pelvic floor dysfunction, pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain and interprofessional collaborative practice models of service provision to enhance pelvic health and pain science. Sinead stays current as a pelvic health physiotherapist through her practice at The World of My Baby, otherwise known as The Womb, a family of perinatal care centres in Ontario, Canada. Her passion for optimising perinatal care and associated upstream health promotion for women stemmed from her own experience becoming a mother of twins. She's an advocate for women's pelvic health and a regular invited speaker at conferences around the world. Well, I hope that introduction does you some significant justice. But can you tell us a little bit about you, Sinead, a little bit more, a little bit about the research and the clinical work that you do, um, so that we can get an even better idea of, 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 of who you are?
1: Yes, absolutely. And thank you for that introduction, Emma. So really, I would say I kind of share my time between my academic role and then my role at the womb, the world of my baby, which is where I am right now. So my practice very much um, really does focus on women through the perinatal care period. So I am um, really helping to care for and support women for a whole variety of things. And of course, this issue of pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain comes up a lot, right? So not only is this an area that I've been doing research in, but really it's it's you know a very big focus of my practice. So certainly as you know we're going through and we're chatting today, just know that I'm I'm not basing my comments just on the academic side. I very much am, am talking about what I am seeing play out every single day in my practice. And the nice thing is, is that where our science has evolved to very much lines up now with what I'm seeing in my practice, right? So I can feel much more confident and have a high degree of conviction. And you'll probably hear that as I go through in terms of really where those of us who are either experiencing this very frustrating um, pain situation, if we're mamas, or even for healthcare practitioners any healthcare practitioners, fitness providers, who are just feeling kind of stuck and struggling trying to help and support these women, Um, you can hopefully feel sort of really confident with what we're going to be talking about today. Amazing. So
2: exciting. I think that one of the things you've hit on there that's really important, Sinead, is the idea that you're a clinical academic, because oftentimes... Being a clinician, reading research can sometimes be frustrating because it doesn't always translate into clinical practice or it doesn't always consider all the factors that are relevant to someone's presentation. And that's where I think you have a bit of a unique stance and I'm really excited to learn from you today. So, yay, let's get into it. Can you tell us a bit about, for anyone listening, what is pelvic girdle pain? How would you describe it?
1: Yeah, so really, I mean, we define pelvic girdle pain almost from like a geographical perspective. (laughs) If you think of where like the pelvis is in the body, and really like it is actually defined technically as pain, any type of a pain output that a person experiences anywhere around that pelvic girdle, that is then sort of categorized as pelvic girdle pain. So in ways, it's really a geographical description. And so With what we know about science now, that actually isn't particularly helpful, but that is really how it is classically defined. And then of course, pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain is again, pain in that same geography of the body, but in the context of either when someone is pregnant or in that first year postpartum, that's the most standard definition of perinatal care. So pain experienced in this part of the body at that time in someone's life, because of course, some specific contextual pieces kind of go hand in hand with that time of life. That's pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain.
0: Okay. So I would say having had two babies myself, um, that I I didn't fortunately suffer from um, pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain, but I definitely experienced aches and pains during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Is, Is that pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain or what would your what would the typical symptoms be if if someone's suffering with this
1: yeah so this is a really great first question emma because it is something that i think needs to be distinguished so even though yes technically if you know you have a pain output or a pain experience anywhere in that part of your body we say oh that's technically pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain but you are quite right the majority, I, I would say probably all women, at least at some point in their pregnancy, like even if it's just one day, will experience an ache or a pain somewhere in that region of their body, right? And yeah. certainly I, I, I was the same. I wouldn't say I had pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain, and I'll mm-hmm. distinguish that in a minute. But did I sometimes have the odd ache or pain, but I could manage it on my own and throw a heat pack on it or rest or maybe do some extra yoga and I was fine? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you're quite right. That's actually not what we're talking about. We're not talking about those little aches and pains that we easily have the resources to kind of take care of. And the next day they're gone. We are talking about a pain presentation that sort of seems to come on. And then we can't, sort of seem to, to manage it or kick it. And that's why we end up either really starting to suffer and struggle and withdraw from our usual activities, Mm -hmm. or maybe partially be doing that and then seeking care. Right. So we are very much talking like right away about a slightly different amplified process that's happening. And that I think is a very clear distinction. So, you know, for those Mamas who are listening, yes, we're talking about those of you who' have had issues and you know you're trying to manage on your own and you just can't seem to, to kick it, definitely come get help, right definitely, 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 because when we really know sort of how to approach this thing properly, we can completely turn it around right yeah and and, during the pregnancy uh, exactly during the pregnancy, and then for those of us who are providing care for people. It's important for us to understand that, yes, there's this difference of the people who are coming in now and saying they've kind of been struggling with this sort of for weeks or maybe even months, you know, we have to understand right away that this means it's it's a different kind of process going on here. And that's why we need to approach it, you know, in, in a slightly different way.
2: Yeah, and what you mean by that, Sinead, is that often or traditionally, um including Miss Eppel, when I think of undergraduate training and how we were taught, we were taught very much, like you said, geographically about the pain and geographically about treating the pain. So that would have been maybe manual approaches, maybe offloading. And mm-hmm. to be honest, when I look back, a lot of the traditional approaches were very restrictive. We nearly just, we underserved women in many ways. Mm-hmm. And I would be quite interested to hear your thoughts on why we get pelvic pain or why some women get it, some women don't, why some of us have the aches and pains and other people have that debilitating pain because for anyone listening who's had pelvic girdle pain, one of the really frustrating things that happens is that if they can, someone complains that they have it, someone goes, oh I had that too mm-hmm. and you know they didn't, they had maybe normal general aches and pains and it's really frustrating because unless you've had it, you don't really understand it. So tell us a little bit about what, uh, what sort of symptoms and activities might aggravate it and also why we think it happens?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is a great question, Grania. So, you know, just going back to that first point about us traditionally thinking about this as, you know, pain in the geography of the pelvis and therefore it must be some structure in the pelvis that really is the source of the pain. So if we can direct our attention at that structure, then we'll sort things out. And certainly we have thought this as well, actually, for various presentations of back pain. And at the end of the day, we now understand that pelvic pain and back pain can very rarely be traced back to a very specific tissue problem, you know, end stop. So we very much have to really kind of push that perspective aside if we're going to move forward in a constructive way. So what then... Does cause this issue, if it really isn't about the structures, and if it really doesn't have to do with what we used to think, such as too much motion at the pelvis because of pregnancy hormones. This has been a, a theory that frankly did make a little bit of sense when you understand the role of relaxin. We can appreciate why we kind of believed that story, but it has not been substantiated, right? And many other factors actually have been substantiated. So what really is this thing all about? Well, if we look at the risk factors that are very established, that gives us some clues as to why we think this pain presentation starts up and why it's happening in some women and not all women. So one of the risk factors, of course, is um, if you have had a previous pregnancy. Right? This is established risk factor across the board. So what we often see is this is a presentation that much more often happens in a second pregnancy, much less often in a first pregnancy. And so we have to try to think, well, I wonder why that is, right? But then when we look at some of the other risk factors, we also see that trauma is a risk factor. Well, when we look at the data around birth and trauma, you know, there is Unfortunately, a very high degree of trauma associated with how women birth in the 21st century in a highly medicalized environment. So, you know, we've had some nice qualitative research now trying to kind of triangulate that factor. That might be a reason why the system is now upregulated going into the next pregnancy. We see another risk factor of previous lower back pain. A lot of us know when there's been a previous back pain. I mean, this again is an incident that we know sort of upregulates or sensitizes the system, right? So again, it's really speaking more to those kind of central factors of tissue sensitivity than anything else. We see the risk factor of dissatisfaction with work, lack of belief that you're going to get better, smoking. You know, increased BMI. These are inflammatory factors and cognitive factors. We actually don't have a single established risk factor, not one, that implicates tissues or mechanics. Every single risk factor actually implicates these other broader systems that then is going to bring on sensitivity in the tissue. But of course, and I mean those of us who are pelvic health physiotherapists, we understand this clear connection between this kind of upregulation or this dialed in sympathetic state and the associated tension in the pelvic floor, the lack of oxygenation to those structures. So of course, that's going to be another reason, even from a peripheral tissue perspective, of why we might have sensitization in this tissue. So if we can kind of tease out those factors and get a sense of kind of what's happening in the underlying physiology in someone, it's very actually easy to predict or understand Who's going to have this issue, and who isn't? But then we can actually follow kind of those principles and address the underlying imbalances in the physiology and correct everything.
0: It's fascinating, isn't it? Because when I have women coming into clinic, the first thing they'll say to me is, Oh, it's all the relaxing in my body, softening. And, and I, I can tell my, my pelvis feels unstable. I, it just doesn't feel s- stable. And I've seen um, various. Sometimes, healthcare, other healthcare professionals who have perhaps managed the, the, that, that, that belief with um, some manipulations and mobilizations, which I'm sure we'll talk about isn't necessarily wrong, but mm-hmm. it, it feeds into this belief that that, that that lady's body is very unstable and mm-hmm. obviously creates fear. And, and I think something that I sometimes struggle with in clinic is when you come from an evidence-based approach and you are trying to re-educate around that, there's always that fear of some women consider that you're saying, well, are you just saying that's in, that the pain's in my head then? And there's also some women who think... Mm-hmm you haven't got a clue what you're talking about because everything else I read clearly states that I have pain because everything's unstable and I get it because my hormones are making it unstable so there's this real kind of disparity between what some of us are saying and what others of us are saying and perhaps none of us are exactly wrong Mm -hmm. but I just wonder how we a better Mm -hmm. communicate that to women but also how we change this whole narrative because it's it's I feel it's stuck Mm -hmm. um and yeah I'd love to know how you Mm -hmm. how you approach that
1: yeah so I mean you're quite right Emma it can be really tricky when we have very firm beliefs from a person coming in but also when they have interfaced with other care providers who they trust who are also kind of communicating that perspective, right? So, I mean, the one thing that we have that we can hold on to very clearly is the mounting evidence base that is really, really making it incredibly clear that, you know, what we thought before isn't right. We can also have confidence then for those of us like myself who are lucky enough to actually work with these women applying what the new evidence shows And seeing how incredibly effective it is and consistently, you know, like like that can, can give us confidence. So I would say probably that is one of the reasons why I have a lot of confidence and conviction when I'm interfacing with these women. So how I tend to approach it is I'm quite pragmatic about it. I will say, look, absolutely, we used to think that. And for good reason, it was a plausible theory. However, what we found actually in practice is when we tried to actually stabilize things, assuming we were dealing with the stability problem, it didn't predictably work. Some people might get better, but they were probably getting better for reasons not related to the stability part of the intervention. They were probably getting better because of other things. And that probably explains why we aren't predictably getting everyone better with this perspective. What we know now because we've learned more, is we understand that this issue actually has much more to do with the physiology of the systems. And they'll oftentimes use the plant analogy. So I will explain how the leaf on a plant, right? That's like the pelvis on the body, and maybe like the other leaves or the arms or legs or other parts of the body. And you know, when pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain is popping up, maybe we see some brown or some cracking on the leaf. And sure, we can have an approach where maybe we're spritzing a little bit of water right on the leaf. Maybe we're bringing that leaf into the sunshine. And is that gonna help it a little bit? Yeah, sh- sure, it will a little bit. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But if we are only doing that and we are completely ignoring the soil, which is really where the main solution is, we are not going to get the outcome we want and we're really gonna do a disservice to this poor plant, right? So if we can kind of be thinking of it that way and saying, look, there's nothing wrong with trying to get some positive inputs around the structures of the pelvis. Depending on our skill set, I mean, some of our colleagues are excellent when it comes to sort of exercise prescription. Some of our colleagues are excellent with their hands-on skills to put some input into those structures. Some of our colleagues really, you know, are great at employing adjunct kind of treatments like really nice kind of compression leggings or, you know, a compressive belt just to provide a little bit of extra sense of security for someone. That's all great. Really and truly, that is great. But we need to make sure that is not our main focus. We need to make sure we're then thinking about that soil. You know, what are the beliefs, fears, previous traumas, aspects that are driving inflammation in this woman's body? Like, what are the things that are really feeding the sensitive tissue? And if a woman can kind of understand that, and if we can say, look, you're assuming that every time you walk and it hurts... Therefore, there must be something mechanically wrong with your pelvis. And you are quite right that your tissues are not sort of responding and activating optimally. Absolutely. But it isn't because of instability. When tissue is more sensitive and reactive, we get co contraction. It impacts motor control, it impacts motor programming. Absolutely. But we have to find different ways to get into your system to kind of restore that. So it really does require a very kind of honest, collaborative conversation, really and truly, so people understand. And I think also acknowledging, look, the pelvic structures are a part of this, but they're involved in a different way than we used to think,
2: right? Love that analogy with the leaf. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. It's a really nice way of thinking about it. And I, I guess what you're saying, like we're really highlighting that the presentation of this is it's more complex in many ways than we probably used to think about it. It's not as localized to the pelvis and it's more multimodal. But That gives women a sense of control in some ways, because if we understand the different factors, some of those we can address and some of those we can address around the clock and not just in a session when you go to someone when they do a hands-on treatment. You know, it's given them the empowerment to go home and think well and to understand the different factors like stress, like, mm-hmm. you know, we know that there's a maternal obesity crisis going on. And we know mm-hmm. that, you know, I've discussed with you before, Sinead, about even the inflammatory processes that go on there and how that might feed in. I'd be interested in you to discuss a little bit about that.
1: So, I mean, you're, you're quite right that we... Um, We really have to get women to kind of understand those factors. So, even if I think through COVID, so through COVID, when we had um, a lot more stress, people not sleeping as well, people's kind of operating rhythm, they're not able to get to their gyms, right? Well, when I would have women seeing me, and oftentimes virtually because of pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain, oftentimes their assumption though, was it still had to do with me? Mechan- well, I'm sitting more. I have this more because I'm sitting more. I haven't been exercising, so my core is weak, and I have this. And it, you know, it doesn't to kind of tease out those other pieces to help make them see the relevance. I would often just pose to them and say, "Yes, you know, certainly we know sitting's inflammatory. We know sitting can shorten structures. What you're saying is plausible." based on the evidence, it's it's unlikely. So, you know, would you say that your life is more stressful right now or less stressful than in, in your last pregnancy? Oh my gosh, way more stressful I'm doing. Okay. Would you say your sleep is better right now or not as good? No, definitely not as good. Would you say, and once you get them kind of understanding that you can then say, so that's actually what the evidence shows. The evidence shows that all those factors that you just said. That's what would explain the difference in your physiological systems, which is translating now to more sensitivity in your pelvic tissues. So we would kind of predict and expect now your pelvic tissues to be a bit cranky and irritable because it's your alarm system. It's really a kind of way of your body saying, we're not quite good, you know, so we need to kind of do something about this. And if we're saying, okay, great, we'll kind of realign your pelvis and But that's that's not what the body's asking for. And so I think in those cases, if you're kind of in and out of a practitioner's office and you maybe get relief for a day, but then two days, when we understand what pain is, and it's basically a communication tool, right, for our body to tell us that we need to address something that is not in homeostasis, if the issue truly was mechanical, and I'm not suggesting that in zero cases it is, there probably are some cases where There are more peripheral inputs going on, but the data definitely kind of shows us that for these issues that are kind of persisting, the people that ultimately come to us, there are usually these other things going on, right? And it is really important that people really do get that because that is actually where the solution is. An individual starting to actually relate to their pain experience differently not thinking, okay, well, if this has to do with my pregnant pelvis, and if this has to do with my pregnancy, I mean, that's a moving target that's going to get more exaggerated. The automatic thinking is my pain experience is going to get more exaggerated, right? So we want people to understand that that's not the case. And because I see this play out in clinical the time, I can with a lot of conviction say to people, look, I have every confidence that when I see you again in four weeks, your pain will be completely gone right? We see that women actually are completely better before they birth those babies, right? When they really understand how to get that soil good, right?
0: I love that. And so that's so brilliant to hear because so many women are told that when they have pelvic girdle pain, that they just have to put up with it they're gonna have their baby, at least it's only maybe another five months of pain and and, and all will be well. And and often that that is the the the, the level of care that they'll receive around pelvic girdle pain, mm-hmm. especially um in the UK at the moment, where the NHS, unfortunately, the system's so strained with um, the demands that COVID's put on it, lots of women are falling through, slipping through the net. And not getting any um treatment or referred on, mm-hmm. and or by the time they get offered their treatment, they've had their baby. Um mm-hmm. and so, you know, it's 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 a crazy system, but it's 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 a system that needs to work for women, particularly at the moment, because we can't offer them a lot, um, mm-hmm. particularly hands-on treatment. It's good mm-hmm. to know that that a their pain they shouldn't be putting up with their pain throughout their pregnancy mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. also that their pain can get better during their pregnancy as well mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. that's 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 really exciting i think if if i were hearing that i'd be i'd be delighted by that
1: yeah and i think it you know i think one of the places where we get stuck is when we look at the risk factors right and we mm-hmm. see that most of them have to do with inflammation or you know lack of belief of improvement or dissatisfaction yeah. with work and we think, okay, but as physiotherapists, like, what can we do about that, right? We can kind of feel a little bit stuck, but you know, as they prescribe exercises and I do things with my hands. So, what can I do for that? Like, maybe I can screen and see if those are relevant, but. I can't actually like modulate those factors, but we actually can. We know that if we are truly using a psychologically informed lens, and we really are helping people to understand how the pain system works. I mean, that in and of itself, we know consistently reduces threat. Mm -hmm. Those of us who have kind of integrated, you know, health coaching and lifestyle interventions in a very basic way. I mean, the most powerful way to modulate Inflammation in the body is through optimal restorative sleep, understanding how the stress response system works, and really kind of engaging in mindfulness interventions to dial that down. So actually, there's tons of things we can do to directly treat Mm -hmm. those actual causes. But I think sometimes as physiotherapists, we don't think of ourselves As being able to directly have those as our primary treatment targets. So we default to kind of the skills we're most familiar with, which are consistently missing the target for this Mm -hmm. particular issue. And then we're also not getting great outcomes. I mean, any of the physios who come and take my course, you know, what drew them to take my course was that they have a hit and miss sort of outcomes. Sometimes their tools work and just sometimes they don't and they're frustrated. Mm-hmm. And likely when they're working they're working actually for different reasons, right? Yeah. And I think that's just really important that as as physiotherapists, we really need to kind of almost rise to the occasion that there has been a call for us to actually make sure we are starting to engage in lifestyle interventions. There has been a call to us Mm -hmm. to make sure that we are kind of really like upscaling our care. And even if we think of, you know, to your point, Emma, that we don't have great coverage of publicly funded care, Mm -hmm. COVID hit, we have to do virtual care. Well, the type of care that is actually evidence-based from this perspective can be delivered really easily virtually. You're putting sort of, you know, you're giving your client a sense of understanding and supportive tools that they can start acting differently to reclaim their health and function. They don't need to be coming in to see you all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. if we can just kind of start to make some of these shifts, actually, you know, it, it lines up better with actually kind of some of the limitations we have and how we can
2: practice actually. I think what's really interesting too Sinead is that physiotherapists as a profession are one of few healthcare professions that have the time element to build up that rapport because that's that sort of approach and the different aspects you're talking about they do talk they do require the time to listen to the patient and to hear their story and to find out to pick out those elements that may be individual to them that might be contributing to their pain and so Mm -hmm. I think we're really 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 well placed and funny when you were talking about um just even stress response and things got me thinking of me, like it's you know, just even thinking I'm a mom of four, and if someone was to ask me am I stressed, I'd say no. But then when I step back, it's what I see in my patients. I coming in every day, seeing me in the sense that, like. Actually, just before we got on the podcast, uh, Sinead, I said to oh my goodness, my clinic ran over. My first patient was late this morning. So my whole clinic ran over. So I'm living in a daily lifestyle of on the go, kids out, get back to work, then do my work. Oh no, I need to go and pick up kids. And then it's the whole cycle again. It's quite high energy. Like I'm not getting Mm -hmm. lots of calm and downtime. And so there, from that perspective, I can appreciate how that might have an impact on different elements of physiology and healthcare and my lifestyle. So I need to. It's just it's just interesting to flag that, and I'm sure many moms and listeners can appreciate the same sort of thing: living on the go, always late, always looking after everybody else, and not looking after themselves.
1: Yeah, and that's a really good point, too, Gronia, That I'm going to connect back to um, the pain as well. You're quite right. So you're mentioning about you know the stress response system, but also the energy system. And, you know, people have different degrees of reserve in their energy system. So if you think of it like an iPhone, like some people have like a really high-tech iPhone that they charge it and it stays like charged for like a day. And other people as their kind of phone is just getting worn out, like they have to kind of keep recharging it, like it drains its battery quicker. And that concept is also really helpful with this. Depending on an individual's life experiences, the state they were in before they even got pregnant, people have different degrees of reserve and resilience, even in their energy system. And so, you know, and this will kind of tease out like those women who, as they're talking, you're getting a sense of, oh my goodness, you are very spread thin. And you're kind of engaged in, okay, tell me a little bit about sort of your operating rhythm even before you get preg- got pregnant. And you're not getting a good sense of really building up that nice, you know, full battery, right? Well, that's another key time when our alarm system will go off. And pain is our alarm system going off, saying ding ding-ding, right? Is when your battery's low, you're running low on gas. So these are the people, especially who say, oh my goodness, like I get through the day, I get home, I can barely stand up to even cook dinner. Like I'm to the point, I can't even cook my family dinner. They're in tears. It's horrendous. And this is their body screaming for help that it does not have the reserve. So this is where, you know, in a way to not make someone feel frustrated about their current circumstances but at least help them to understand that physiologically, that's just highly predictable. That's biology, right? So there's nothing wrong with them, but they need more energy in the tank. And then it's a matter of helping them problem solve. How can we get like little fast doable reboots? And so one of the things I'll often have them say is, look, I want you to, and then they feel guilty, let's say, because after dinner, they know they should walk and they should get some exercise, but they're just done at that time. And they try to walk with their husband and they just can't. And I'll say, okay, see how it goes walking in the morning. Even if it's literally just for five minutes, you get up in the morning. That's when your cortisol is high. Your energy is going to be as full as it's going to be. And consistently, they will come back and say, yeah, it's totally different. You can say, because it's an, it's an energy problem, right? Our body is supposed to tell you it's in pain when something is, you know, the alarm is going off. So, I mean, your body is actually doing what it's supposed to do. So when women um, are really having this issue of really they struggle and can't even function in the evening, right? And that's a nice inroad to help them to consider for the first time the connection between their pain experience and their energy system, and the alarm system, which is just basic physiology, but no one has ever kind of explained it to them this way before, right? And then if they can take that and even just try and experience for themselves a little bit of walk in the morning, and just contrast that to how different their body moves, how different they feel, and the pain experience compared to when they try to do that in the evening, I mean, consistently, I see in my practice that women come back and say, yes, like I, it's totally different. And that then can be a very powerful opportunity for women to now shift their beliefs and understanding about this issue. Because I can point out very clearly, the mechanics of walking, the actual mechanics of it are the same at five o'clock as they are at seven in the morning. What's very, very different though, is the physiology informing the mechanics. And now that you're seeing your pain experience is totally different it's because your pain experience probably is being more modulated by the physiology. And the physiology does change the tissue at that tissue level. So, and so it is a real change and tightening and protection response that happens when the alarm goes off, right? And so again, it can be, these can be the women, for example, so I said before that, yes, once women can kind of understand how to get the soil better, then they have no pain. The reality is for some women, they can better understand what's making their soil not healthy, but they can't always change all of it. So sometimes a woman will have an incredibly stressful job, really difficult relationship with their boss, for example, And it can be helpful for her to now understand and relate to her pain experience, especially when it ramps up that it's connected to that. But she's not in a position to change jobs. So it's a matter of her at least understanding that and then having lots of tools to kind of manage around it. But the very fact that she gets that that's the issue and she's not thinking her pelvis is unstable, that is still powerful. And women will consistently say, yeah, you know, I still have the pain, but I think because I understand like yeah, of course I have the pain. I'm on my way for home from work. I had another really stressful conversation with my boss. But they're they're getting it that it has to do with that. And so even that takes fear out of it. Like even that um takes some of the threat out of it, right? So yeah. even for the women that we can't 100% fix the pain because we can't fix some of these factors you know we just can't her understanding though that that is really what's keeping the tissues sensitive there's power and threat reduction in that and then Mm -hmm. we can kind of focus on all of the things we can focus on including peripheral tissue things to kind of get into the system that way as well
2: yeah oh I love it that's great Guess it's like rationalizing the pain in many ways, Sinead, because an example I often use um, to describe pain in clinic to women is that it doesn't always equate to harm or tissue damage. And I always like the example of stubbing my toe. So if I stub my toe, it's really, really, really sore. Before I look at my toe, I've already got these fears because of the extent of the pain. I'm thinking, oh no, there's blood. I think the nails off and I'm already starting to kind of think all these possibilities to rational or to reason this pain but as soon as you look at your toe and see it's okay there's nearly a sense of relief because you understand okay no I stubbed my toe it is sore it's still throbbing but you're okay with that even though it's throbbing after that there's a sense of once you understand it you take away that fear element of what if Mm -hmm. um, and then you're able to get on with it a bit better tolerate it a bit better understand it a bit better
1: yeah, absolutely. Because one of the, the things that we see with, with any type of pain, but also with pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain, it's the not knowing, right? That kind of future feed forward that really ticks up the system. So, you know, when people kind of have an understanding and let's even use that, that work example and they think, okay, well actually I'm going to finish working when I'm 36, 37 weeks pregnant. And so they can almost kind of look forward to that, even though that's the thing driving their, because because they understand it. And really, if we think of, you know, our explain pain or a pain neuroscience education, that really is coming at pain more from this cognitive sort of perspective. But then we also have lots of acceptance perspectives of pain, which are slightly different. And these are kind of more of our mindfulness interventions, So, I find I'm often weaving aspects of both of these approaches in, which are evidence informed approaches, just to help women kind of really be able to relate to their pain experience in a way that thread is way down and they can get on with it. And for many, many women, that translates to they come in to see me ahead of their birth and they're really excited to talk more about their birth. Like they're not even thinking about the pain because they're, Functioning and they're doing great. They're back in your yoga class and they're great. Now they're just thinking about how do I have a great birth, and I mean it's possible that still at times they're having pain, but because they're relating to it in a different way and they've gone on to, it's not debilitating them anymore, right? And so it isn't really a focus of our conversation because they've kind of got on with it. So I think some of those acceptance approaches, as well as the kind of more traditional cognitive approaches, which are our you know, explain pain strategies, which we should be be using always, (laughs) including pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain. You know, I I think that that is part of what can be really helpful with these women.
0: Yeah, I think that's brilliant. One thing that's often posed as threatening is, um, is exercise with uh, women who have pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain. Um, And traditionally i guess actually we've been guilty of saying to these women that they should stop exercising Mm -hmm. um, particularly when it comes to doing any exercise that might mean they have to open their legs so you've just mentioned yoga there Um, and that would have been um i'll hold my hands up probably about five years ago something i would have said oh my goodness don't do yoga because it's going to cause an increase in your pain and actually we're saying quite the opposite now aren't we in terms Mm -hmm. of yoga and i'm hoping in terms of exercise because we know how incredibly important it is that we keep as physically active and exercise as, as much as possibly that we can during pregnancy. So would you help us, you know, bust the myth around exercise when it comes to this um, condition,
1: please? Absolutely. And that is so important, Emma, because you nailed it there. We need women moving and exercising and feeling strong and confident in their body. I mean, if we truly are going to promote health of the population, one of our most critical windows is actually the influences to that fetus of that pregnant mom, you know, and that is going to serve that little human being for the rest of their life. So as we're working with mom, we really should be thinking about health-promotive things for that other little human being. And we need exercise, right? We need good sleep and nutrient-dense food too, but we need movement and exercise. So hands down, that should always be one of our priorities is to get a woman understanding their pain in a way that it actually changes the sensitivity of their tissues in their pelvis so they can move with ease again, right? And when it comes to specific exercises that are on the no-no list, I mean, We used to think that because we used to think this was a stability problem. We now know it isn't a stability problem. It's a sensitivity problem. So there really are no exercises on the no-no list. However, it stands to reason that each mama is unique. So there probably are going to be kind of specific things for each person that might be a bit nuanced that might be particularly irritable for that person. And obviously, if for that person, a particular motion is particularly irritable, obviously, we just won't do that, right? And it will kind of be tailored to each person. We're going to listen to the body. But for the most part, we actually have really good evidence in terms of the opposite of keep yourself stable, keep your legs together, you know, a a really excellent pioneering Uh, physiotherapist from Holland, Cecile Rost, over a decade ago now, published a paper with almost a thousand data points. And really what she came up with is a very basic kind of gentle routine of movement that actually opens the pelvis and gently coordinating some gentle contraction on sort of the lateral aspect of the leg to the medial aspect of the leg and finding incredible success with this little movement sequence in terms of sort of reestablishing a more noble, normalized motor control through the pelvis. She refers to it as a symmetry sequence. And so we see something that simple and we probably don't still even have figured out the actual mechanisms that underlie why we get such good outcomes for that. But I mean, here's a situation where we're opening the pelvis up at the front and getting immediate benefit so what we see is actually gentle fluid mindful movement that opens the pelvis very similar to what is in a prenatal yoga class like how popular is prenatal yoga do we see scads and scads of women not being able to participate in that no it's one of the best things you can do because with yoga you are training your mind and your body, which is critical to set you up for success in labor. So I am a huge fan of novel movement and yoga, a huge, huge, huge fan. And you're quite right, Emma, for those people who can't engage in a yoga class, I would argue whoever's supporting them hasn't helped them well enough to address the things that are actually making their tissue sensitive. Because if that is done, they should be able to engage in yoga and yoga should make them better. They should be able to engage in walking. Might they be able to engage in something higher impact or a little bit more intense? Maybe not, because those are things that are going to predictably make sensitive tissue more irritable. So we wouldn't even have those expectations of a system like that but are we expecting basic low impact movement and novel movement and things like yoga? Hands down. And we have so much data to show that those are the best things
2: people should do. Fantastic. I think that really sums it up and discusses it really well. And I love how you're just taking away a lot of the fear surrounding this um, condition, Sinead. Um, One thing that I was aware of in terms of pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain and I suppose some of the science that we're starting to um, see behind it is while not everyone will either want to or be able to breastfeed afterwards, there is some research supporting breastfeeding in terms of pelvic pain. Can you discuss that um, with us and, um, and how it may be beneficial to women who are in, coming up towards delivery?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I love that you brought this up, Gronia, because what's interesting actually is the leads on that study, and it was a study with 11,000 women. So we are talking a huge end size that we can feel really confident about sort of the findings because we had such a big sample. But some of the leads on this work were actually some of the same researchers who first published the European Pelvic Girdle Pain Guidelines back in 2008 which of course was around the time where we were really thinking of this as a biomechanical issue. And that sentiment is is communicated in that guideline. And that guideline, of course, is, is still very sort of popular today. And that even might be one of the reasons why we get some perpetuation of this outdated science. But the leads on this work, and this particular study I think was published in 2013, they actually hypothesized that breastfeeding into the postpartum period would actually be predictive of more pelvic girdle pain because this group was still operating on the theory of pregnancy hormones makes for sort of a pelvis that isn't going to be quite as connected. And the lack of connection is why we have the pain, right? So still going on this theory that we now know just doesn't hold up. Right. And actually their study is one of the things that proves that this theory doesn't hold up because what they ended up finding to their surprise. And so they discussed this in the discussion section, session, section of their paper is that actually no breastfeeding had a protective effect. And they thought, Oh my goodness, why could this have been? And the only group it didn't have a protective effect for was the subgroup of um, mamas who were um, labeled as obese according to their BMI. So they hypothesized in their mechanism that has to come down to inflammation. The anti inflammatory effect of oxytocin is actually what changes the soil, makes it more anti inflammatory, and therefore we don't have the sensitive tissue. But the women who have the obesity. There's so much inflammation from that. We don't have enough anti-inflammatory impact to kind of net that out. So that is the only group that it wasn't protective for. So you're quite right. Sort of any of our tools that will promote more of an anti-inflammatory environment, and breastfeeding is one of them, is actually going to be a help for this issue.
2: Fascinating. And I think it's a really important point to be aware of prenatally, because Breastfeeding is a choice and um, it, look at whatever, whatever women decide, and uh, whatever works for women is the best thing for the mother and baby. But if you're kind of on the fence or if you're at the stage where you want to try breastfeeding, but you start to hit a few hurdles in the early postpartum period, because it's not all as straightforward. If you know that it may be beneficial to your pelvic pain, it may be that tipping point that makes you want to continue or persevere with it. And um, mm-hmm. so I think having the information and being informed prenatally about the potential positive impact of breastfeeding on pelvic pain um, is really beneficial to women. So I would call for any healthcare professionals listening to this who are dealing with the prenatal population to make sure that you're informing and advising your women regarding this um, and making sure that they can access and know how to access support for any feeding difficulties postpartum. Yeah, I
1: think that's really, really important too, Grania, because actually too, I mean, the data shows that, you know, when women have unresolved fear in pregnancy, that translates directly with more lumbopelvic pain, pelvic girdle pain. It also translates directly with more interventions being used in the birth, including more cesarean birth. And, you know, those are oftentimes the situations where those babies are really going to benefit from breast milk, especially a cesarean birth. There's implications for babies' immune system, their microbiome, like a whole host of things. So I think, yes, if we, and we have data that when women have a little bit more information about breastfeeding prenatally, that additional support usually translates to better success postnatally. So I do think that that's a good point. Yes, we don't want to be imposing sort of our own judgment and bias on women. But we have to be very clear on the fact that when it comes to pain, immune system development, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. One of the most health promoting strategies that exists is, is breastfeeding. Right. So I think, you know, the more we can just translate information in that regard and women can then make their own informed choices. Um, I, I do see that as an important role for us.
2: Sinead, what are your thoughts on belts so again going back to yeah. some of those pr- traditional sort of approaches like women often ask should they be buying a support belt wearing a support belt what are your thoughts on that given all that we have discussed today and we know the multimodal um, factors feeding into pelvic pain where do you stand if someone asks you about belts
1: Yeah. So great question. Really, really good question. So again, you know, because I'm an academic, I'm always kind of trying to springboard what I do clinically off of the science. So if we look at the data from the clinical practice guidelines for pregnant women, the most updated ones were published in 2017. The recommendation for belts is a D, which is pretty low, right? And this is for women in pregnancy. However, when you look through some of the studies, what we see is sort of more elastic types of belts or supports in some small studies seem to have some utility. And that's probably why it's a D and not sort of an F, right? If we look at the guidelines that are actually going to be published in uh, 2022, so I was able to have a quick sneak peek of these guidelines. um, the recommendation for belts postnatally, because this guideline that's to be published in the Journal of Women's Health Physical Therapy is specific to pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain postnatally, actually the recommendation is an A and uh, for the postpartum scenario. And part of that, when you look at the data, is actually sort of compressive types of garments there's really good data for those to be used after cesarean birth, actually, for abdominal wall function and for pain. And so some of the studies, of course, are pooling all types of modes of birth together. And so my stance on this very much aligns with um, recommendations from a really well-done paper that was published in 2019 by Palson et al., that was talking about changing the narrative of sacroiliac joint pain, an excellent paper. And really, their kind of final comments on this paper is what do we do about uh, as physiotherapists? And essentially, basically summarizing all the things we've talked about today, like SIJ pain isn't a mechanical thing. And we're not even talking about pregnancy-related SIJ pain in this paper is to indicate that, look, yes, we need to be making sure people understand the structural integrity of their pelvis. This is a really strong, robust structural area. And that any of the other care we provide then needs to be congruent with that. So we can't be talking about structural integrity of the pelvis and then saying, well, here's your stability belt, right? That's cognitive dissonance. So I'm a big fan, actually, of not pregnancy belts, but supportive Where, um but i'm never framing it from a stability perspective right so you know um evb src like these are two excellent companies i really like their products um and i will you know um portray it from the perspective of proprioceptive input feeling a sense of safety um Certainly, SRC garments, I think EVD is the same. They're medical grade compression, so you're getting excellent support on the lymphatic system. That means you're not going to drain your energy system as fast. So, I actually really like those tools in pregnancy and postnatally. Um, and we certainly have some decent data, especially postnatally, for those, but not framing it as a stability issue. Like that, that's critical.
0: Okay, brilliant. I think twenty twenty two is going to be quite um, an interesting year for compressing, compre- compressive garments, isn't it? Mm-hmm, With uh, yes, there's, there's lots of bits of
2: research coming out. Yes, lots them. of
1: exciting stuff coming down the pipeline. <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah,
2: I'll be, I'll be, I'll be reaching out to you at some stage. I've already, I've started my data collection, so it's very okay, exciting amazing. time. So hopefully, oh, we'll find okay. out a bit more information um, in twenty twenty two. Yes. Um, If if you're a healthcare
0: professional listening um, and want to know more about the courses that Sinead offers, um, Sinead, would you share with us how we can get onto your courses and um, and what courses uh, you do offer for, for us?
1: Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Emma. So I teach a couple of courses with a company called Reframe Rehab. Um, So they have a website, they have Instagram at, at reframe rehab. And the courses I teach is reframing pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain. So that is a course that it's kind of four hours over two days. So it's about eight hours of content. And then I also teach a very short, almost like a mini course on lifestyle interventions and health coaching. Um, And then through a different company uh, called Bia Formations, they are a company based out of Quebec in Canada. I teach a course um, on uh, diastasis together with Stephanie Bernard. It is a a self-paced kind of online course, whereas my courses with Reframe Rehab are live online, but available through uh, recording. So those are the, the courses that I've developed myself um, that I I teach through those two companies
0: Brilliant. and we'll put the links to those on our on our show notes as well um, I, I suspect you'll be you'll be fully booked after after people have heard um, heard you today we always like to end our show Sinead with um, three top tips from our guest um, that can help women who are suffering from Uh, the condition or symptom that we're talking about. Um, So I'd love, without putting you on the spot, um, we'd love to hear your top three tips that uh, to any woman suffering with pregnancy-related pelvic girdle
1: pain. What can they do? Mm -hmm. So the first thing I would say is circles back to kind of what I said at the beginning. So it's a bit of a bookend here. But really and truly, if you are that person that kind of having these aches and pains—you've kind of tried your usual things, and and it's just not effective. You know, do not wait. Get in, get help. Right. So, so that's first tip. Second tip is really to um, try to, for a moment, just consider this pain experience not from the perspective of the structures of your pelvis and not from the perspective of mechanics. It can be really hard. We're so wired to think, yes, but when I take a step and it hurts and I roll over in bed, it's very hard to sort of disentangle your pain experience from the mechanics. But I would really urge you to, for a moment, um, almost try to prove that it actually isn't mechanical. And one of the best ways we can do this actually is by walking backwards. So if you walk forwards, again, you know, the threat response of pain, it's a predictive output. So the brain is anticipating, oh, I'm going to take a couple steps forward. Taking forward steps hurt five minutes ago. Therefore, it's going to be dangerous. Co-contraction and then it hurts, right? That's how our systems work. So walking backwards is like a novel movement. It's newer inputs into the brain. So the brain doesn't have time to think, oh, this is going to be threatening, right? And that can be a very powerful way for a woman to kind of see, oh, wasn't that the darndest thing? Now I just took a couple steps backwards. And, you know, it didn't hurt the same way. And that can be a way to help her to maybe have some Conviction that maybe this isn't just about the mechanics, right? So that's another thing um, I would say. And then my third tip would be around when we think about really wanting good energy, lower inflammation, a full battery, not just to, you know, um, modulate a very disruptive pain experience. But also just, you know, for our whole well-being and for the well-being of our baby, if you're feeling frustrated because you just can't see how that is possible, the way your life is organized, a very powerful thing you can do is what I call the 3 p.m. reboot. So at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that generally is when the energy system is going to tank. And this is oftentimes as we're, you know, really engaging our mamas to kind of tell us about their life and their symptoms. We'll see it kind of lines up like this, and you'll say, "Yeah, it kind of sounds like you hit that three four, four o'clock, and you're done." And they're like, "Oh my gosh, yes, I'm done." And that's very predictable, given the energy system, right? So we, when we say, "Look, would it be manageable at all to even just for ten minutes?" be able to, to have 10 minutes to yourself at that time. Like, is it possible to just get someone in to mind the other kids for 10 minutes? We're not talking about an hour. We're not. It's 10 minutes. Get into a room by yourself, away from your dependence, away from the things you need to do and get into a legs up the wall position. It's a yoga position, but it's an incredibly restorative position get in that position and engage in just three minutes of kind of focused diaphragmatic breathing, three minutes of focus, very gentle pelvic floor pumping, and three minutes of ankle pumping. So we're supporting the lymphatic system. We're here. We've been in the now a mindfulness intervention. And what we see consistently, we've had a chance to get our body into that parasympathetic side of the nervous system. And what we find is that reboot often is a game changer for that woman to now be able to get through this very busy kind of last chunk of her time and then have a really good rest at night. So, you know, that is is a tip that I use for a lot of my clients
2: fantastic I'm stealing women that. everywhere taking, I'm going to take a 3pm 3 3pm 3 reboot I think yeah, I can do it to lower that high oh. high energy
0: that's going on absolutely it. it's 20 in 20 minutes it's 3pm in the I'm UK I'm doing so it I'm doing it I'm going it. up
2: against that wall I love it I just want to finish on that everyone just in case they aren't aware Sinead actually has some Irish origin so like I'm, I'm claiming that um, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, I do. I do. My parents immigrated to Canada from Cork, and oh, uh, and yeah, indeed. and I'll be in Belfast next year because my daughter no just qualified for Worlds Irish dancing. <gasps> wow, she that's fantastic, qualified last she week in Calgary oh. at the Canadian Nationals. So yes, oh, lots of congratulations. Irish connections. That. That's amazing. Oh, oh you have to
2: have a you'll have to have I'll a catch in up. touch. Yeah, I must find out when you're coming over and if it works, I will um, connect with you. But otherwise, um, yeah, look forward to that. And thank you so much for coming on today. We've learned so much. It's been fantastic. And I think we really have got into the nitty gritty to bust some myths and to start to reframe basically the current understanding. So thank you for doing that, for taking the time. And we look forward to having you on in the future at some stage too, Sinead.
1: Okay. Well, thank you, Gronia and Emma. This was so fun to chat about this with both of you. And I think important just to kind of keep mobilizing just our more advanced understanding so we can help more women.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. we always love to hear your feedback and any questions you might have So please do contact us via Instagram at your cervix underscore the podcast or Twitter at your cervix underscore PM. Don't forget to check out our wonderful sponsor, Pelvic Relief. You can find them at www.pelvicrelief.co.uk. Gronja and I really look forward to catching up with you next week.